Welcome back to episode 13 of the Pulsock Podcast. I'm Jerome Devitt. You join us back in the second part of a pair of episodes, this time with Dr Lucy Michael, one of the IREC commissioners. She's going to talk us through human rights, and particularly the human rights component of the relationship between Ireland and the UN, the Universal Periodic Review, and the treaty body system. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to the UN than just human rights. So before we dive into that component, I want to just take a couple of minutes to sketch out some of those other UN functions. To be clear, this isn't an attempt to give a comprehensive account of the UN. We'll return to that in a later episode. But rather, I'm hoping to give you an initial sense of where human rights fits in with the whole UN story. Given that the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UDHR, was one of the early milestones of the United Nations, being proclaimed as it was in December 1948. Its history since then has not been straightforward, but again, we'll come back to that. The briefest summary I can give of the UN is to note its principal organs, which are the General Assembly, the Security Council, the Economic and Social Council, the Trusteeship Council, the International Courts of Justice, and the UN Secretariat. We'll return to many of these in later episodes, but very briefly, you could think of the General Assembly as the main deliberative body of the United Nations. It's composed of representatives from all the member states, all on an equal footing with one vote. Secondly, and in some ways one of the most powerful and significant components of the UN, in my opinion at least, is the Security Council, a body that we will feature in greater detail in an upcoming episode concerning Irish diplomacy and world affairs. So I'll leave it here, except to note that Ireland won a non-permanent seat on the Security Council in 2021 for a two-year stint. But, as I said, more on that later. Next is the Economic and Social Council. A founding UN charter body, ECOSOC, as it's known, was established in 1946. It's the place where the world's economic, social and environmental challenges are discussed and debated, and where policy recommendations are issued. From the perspective of a Polsock student looking at their specification, we'd need to be particularly aware of the fact that sustainable development falls primarily under the umbrella of ECOSOC, but also that some of our other development agencies, like the IMF and the World Bank Group, also find their place in the order here. From a COVID perspective, you'd also find the World Health Organization operates in this area, but so do other groups like UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and cultural organisation, which students might recognise in terms of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, like Newgrange or Skelly Michael, sites of such world significance as to require international protection. The next principal organ is the Trusteeship Council, but it's virtually defunct now, so I'll pass over it quickly here. The International Courts of Justice is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, based in The Hague in the Netherlands. It's court is charged with settling legal disputes between states and giving advisory opinions to the United Nations and its specialised agencies. We won't linger too long on that here either. The UN Secretariat, consisting of staff representatives of nationalities working in duty stations all over the world, carries out the day-to-day work of the organisation. The Secretariat services the other principal organs of the United Nations with administrators and programmes and policies established by them. Overseeing this is the UN Secretary-General, currently Antonio Gutierrez, who serves a five-year term which started in 2017. I'll try and remember to update that name when a new UN Secretary-General is nominated by the Security Council and appointed by the General Assembly, but I won't make too many promises on that front. You'll have noticed by now that the Human Rights Council, 
founded in 2006 after the dissolution of the Human Rights Commission, is not one of the six principal organs of the UN, though it is hoped that in the not-too-distant future it will be elevated to that position. Its responsibilities fall primarily under the remit of the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and we in Ireland should be very proud of the fact that one of our former Uchtheron, Mary Robinson, held that role. If anybody knows how to contact her and convince her to come on for an interview, you might be good enough to let me know. So with that broader piece of context taken care of, let's dive in. I've always been fascinated by how people end up working in the areas that they do. So I asked Dr. Lucy Michael to give us a quick overview of how she ended up serving as an IREC commissioner and what it's like to do the job. Bearing in mind that I carried out the interview for this episode along with my previous episode, the Sinead that you'll hear referred to here is, of course, Chief Commissioner Sinead Gibney. But I doubt you needed that refresher. Here's how Lucy answered the question. So I'm one of the new commissioners that came in six months ago. And uh, yeah, it was a, a steep learning curve to be on a state board. How's that governance element of it? But it, it's very much steeped in human rights and equality. I started with the law degree and I went on to sociology. So I've been a sociology lecturer most of my career. And uh, I've been an activist as well for years in uh, running women's centres in uh, anti-racism. And my career has mostly been around the area of racism and ethnic minority community representation and leadership. So since around 2002, so nearly 20 years, I've been doing embedded fieldwork with ethnic minority and migrant communities about accessing services, resources, how they are represented in governance, uh, how they're affected by policy change and how capacity building projects can help or hinder ethnic minority experiences. I joined the commission because there was a couple of things I was really passionate about uh, seeing on the agenda. And I have my passions, other commissioners have their passions. So of the 14 of us, it's 14 very passionate people alongside Sinead, who's deeply committed to human rights and equality. We all have our own particular interests and, and expertise, but my work broadly has been around the experiences of, of equality as well. So I've worked across particularly faith communities, but also intersections around disability and sexuality. Um, and so in the commission, you are asked to look at a really wide range of equality issues. And you have to bring that very broad understanding of human rights and equalities to it. It's fascinating. It's really hard work sometimes to get your head around an issue. Kathleen Lynch, who's on your curriculum, is a fellow commissioner and she brings you know, a long career of understanding gender, but particularly interest in prisons too. So the sociological view is definitely represented highly in the, in the commission. And we're all people who are used to lobbying around policy. We're used to talking about how do we recognise when there is a gap, when there is a need and what can we do about it? And I guess the challenge that we share with Sinead is what can we use the, the mechanisms that IREC has to make that change? Being a commissioner must be such an interesting role to fulfil, I think. But I wanted to get stuck into the nitty-gritty. So I asked Lucy to give us an overview of what the Universal Periodic Review is and how it works. The Universal Periodic Review of the UN is one way that the United Nations and its member countries tracks the performance of countries in terms of their human rights obligations. The United Nations has a, a large series of treaties that countries sign up to, ratify and, uh, and promise to implement in their own legislation and policy. 
there are core human rights, which countries are, are expected to comply with. And then there are a series of, of wider rights that they're expected to work towards. So the Universal Periodic Review is quite an interesting process in that every country gets to make a comment on, on every other country. And Ireland went through that in 2016. Um, now, for me, the UPR is, is kind of an interesting process in that everybody's at the party and everybody's making comments on the issues that they feel most strongly about. But what I really love is the treaty committees and the way that Ireland is held to account for those. They have monitoring functions, they have appeals functions. Um, some of them can do things like compensation and reparation. Some of them are specifically about working with and advising and supporting governments, perhaps running trainings for judges or police officers, for example. Uh, others are about carrying out research and um, others are specifically about advocating and working with groups that are vulnerable uh, to human rights abuses or, or denials. So they have varying different roles and, and some of them are about inspections. All of them, I will say, are about accountability. So accountability is at the heart of human rights and equality structures. And although organizations represent that in different ways, they might be advocating in public for um, access to human rights and equalities, or they might be using some mechanisms to, to actually affect that. Um, but all of them are about accountability. And the UN processes are interesting because of this accountability. And the accountability is to other countries who are your neighbours, who you do trade with, who you, who your citizens go and migrate to live in. You know, we have these global relationships and the human rights infrastructure is one of those ways that those global relationships are sustained and developed. And being able to use this human rights infrastructure means that when we choose trading partners, uh, when we choose our allies, that we can also, that human rights is part of that relationship, it's embedded in that relationship. It's not something that gets pushed aside because you don't feel like it this year. So UPR is, is, is very exciting, particularly when you're looking at countries who are just picking out one or two things about your human rights obligations. And it might be about disability, it might be about LGBT rights, it might be about gender discrimination. It could be about experience of indigenous communities in, in Ireland, the traveller community. And other countries will have experiences that they can bring to bear in making those comments. Now, there's a concept uh, called progressive realisation that maybe uh, students have heard of. And that's the idea that uh, you can't go backwards. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that a country doesn't have to give you your rights yet. The rights apply from day one. But what it means is that it should always seek to add to those rights. It should always seek to make them more accessible with the ability for people living in direct provision or in the international protection system to have the right to work. The government can formally comply with that in terms of granting work permits, um, but in terms of actually realising that right and, and vindicating or defending that right, it's necessary to do the other things to make that possible. So, for example, we have a huge issue still decades later with uh, the traveller community accessing um, mainstream education. Uh, now, the formal policies are there. Over the years, there have been varying levels of support from shockingly awful to marvellously brilliant and and very temporary. But what we saw, for example, is that in 2008, when austerity came and the Celtic tiger uh, roared its, its last roar, what the government did was the first thing it did was it went and it cut the budget very significantly 
of the Equality Authority, which it cut by 80%. That's one of the parent bodies of, of IREC. And it also cut huge swathes of community projects, including all of the very good traveler education projects. And so what happened essentially was we went backwards in terms of the realization of rights, both in terms of travel education projects and in terms of the Equality Authority, where travelers had been able to vindicate some of those rights. So when we talk about progressive realization, we're talking about exactly that and um, holding countries to always going forward on human rights and not backward. Untangle the terminology means understanding the tricky words. In this week's very brief Untangling the Terminology, we follow on from what Dr. Michael was explaining about progressive versus immediate realisation of rights. Immediate realisation of rights applies where the state must act without delay to realise substantive and cross-cutting rights such as equality and non-discrimination. Think of them as things that can be done with the swish of a pen, making a formerly illegal practice legal, for example. With progressive realisation of rights, however, full rights realisation might be difficult in the short term, perhaps because of constrained financial resources. But states do have a continuing obligation to take appropriate steps, deliberate, concrete and clearly targeted, to realise the rights as quickly and as effectively as possible. Another one of those structures that I wanted to get an insight into was the UN treaty bodies and their committees. But rather than sticking with the broad, sweeping overview of the UPR, I asked Lucy to talk a little bit about the committee in her area of expertise, CERD, the Committee on the Eradication of Racial Discrimination. So these treaties are all voluntarily signed up to by Ireland and the other countries of the UN. And once they have ratified them, they're expected then to put in place uh, the things that are needed to, uh, to provide those human rights, to make those human rights accessible. So governments don't grant human rights. Human rights are are already things that you own naturally. And what governments are obliged to do is ensure that you can exercise those rights. So anything that exists in a state that prevents you from exercising your human rights, governments are obliged to address those barriers and challenges. So for example, one of the recent shadow reports that I worked directly on in my professional career was a shadow report to the uh, the committee uh, that works on the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. In other words, the UN's kind of anti-racism committee. The accountability process within these committees is that every four years, a country that has ratified that convention is called to give a report to the committee on what they have done in the preceding four years, whether they have made progress, which areas they've made progress in, where they still have work to do and what work they intend to do in those areas. And when the government submits its report to the United Nations Committee, then civil society and the National Human Rights Institution, in, in our case, IREC, have an opportunity to put in what we call alternative reports or shadow reports to the UN committee to tell them the other side of the story. So France or the United States or China or Ireland can go to a UN committee and say, look, we've done really good work in the last four years on the uh, human rights that are recognised by this particular convention. But civil society and human rights institutions can come in and say, well, yes, but not as much as they're claiming. Or, well, they've done great work in this area, but actually this work, this area has been completely uh, ignored or has even gone backward. And so the accountability process happens in those treaty committees through that dialogue between the state, the committee and civil society. 
essentially imagine it like this. You've got civil society organizations and organizations like IREC in Ireland talking to government and talking to the media and saying, we need to do more work on a particular area. Now, you could talk till the air turns blue about particular areas to government. If they don't want to move on it, they're not going to move on it, particularly if they don't think it's a, it's a vote getter. Now, you take that to UN committee and air it in an international space. And now you've got sitting on the treaty committees are experts appointed by a range of different UN members. So you might have somebody from Jamaica, you might have somebody from France, you might have somebody from uh, Indonesia, and they will be their country's nominated expert on that area. So they might be a professor, they might be a lawyer, but they will be somebody that, that has a deep amount of expertise and interest in, in that particular topic. So going back to the Treaty Committee on Racism, uh, that committee was stuffed with experts all nominated by different countries who understood racism, fundamentally understood racism. And their job on the committee is to examine countries in turn on the issue of racism. Uh, so they build a huge amount of experience through the committee process as well. So when Ireland goes in front of them, they've already examined maybe four or five countries in the preceding months, and they understand what that landscape looks like. What are governments doing to tackle racism? What are the common areas where there are barriers and challenges? What are the areas governments don't like to deal with? And what can we recommend that, that the next country in front of us does to try and address it? So the recommendations that they make, which are called concluding observations, essentially are a list of recommendations of things government should do. I think it's really worthwhile having a look at that. You can even just Google Ireland CERD, C-E-R-D, concluding observations, and you will see what that committee said about Ireland's performance on racism. So when we went to Geneva in December 2019 and sat in front of that committee and they examined Ireland on racism, we had in the delegations, you had people who had been mixed race Irish in the mother and baby homes. You had people who had experienced exclusion from education as a traveler, you had people who had experienced racism because they were a person of African descent in the workplace. So you had all of these lived experiences and expertise in the room talking to the UN committee and the UN committee turn around the next day and they ask questions of the Irish state. What have you done in this area? Why are we hearing reports that not enough funding or not enough legislation has been put in into a particular area? So those concluding observations come after nearly a year's work from civil society, human rights organizations and the state, but they really provide an insight into where Ireland sits in terms of the, the international landscape on racism. And I think that's a, a really accessible way to understand Ireland's performance on human rights. If you go into something like the Universal Periodic Review, it's every issue, everything's thrown in there and it's all the different countries looking at that. But go into one, any one of the treaty committees that you're interested in and have a look at what the committee says about Ireland and you'll get a much deeper, richer picture about what's happening. And of course, you can, in the same website that hosts the concluding observations, you can also see what each of the civil society organisations said about the state and what the National Human Rights Organisation IREC said about the state because it makes reports to every treaty committee at the inspections as well. The treaty committees really take seriously that idea that human rights don't only exist in a convention. They don't only exist in legislation and policy. 
they exist as things that you exercise in your everyday life. So when you get up and go to work in the morning, when I get up and go to work in the morning, we're able to do things because the world is set up for us to do them easily. So we get lots done in our day because the world is set up for us. But if the world is not set up for you to be able to access something, everything suddenly gets a, a lot more difficult. And that is as true of racism or sexuality as it is of, uh, of disability. The world is not set up for everybody. And so a lot of human rights conversations become about particular groups and their lack of access to resources or services, their inability to vindicate their own human rights, not because they're particularly special or warrant more attention, but because they've had less attention, because they are given less support in day-to-day -day life than you and I are going about our, our daily business with ease and convenience. The policies and laws are set up for us. They should be set up for everybody. Lucy, true scholar that she is, sent me on the details of many of those shadow reports that I will dutifully include in the episode notes to make your lives just that little bit easier at a time that's very busy for all students. I strongly advise that you take a look. It's time for Quote of the Day. In this week's Quote of the Day, I asked our guest if she had a particular preference and was delighted to hear a quote drawn from an historical figure with whom I have long been fascinated, the American abolitionist and former enslaved person, Frederick Douglass, who opined, quote, If there is no struggle, there is no progress. To me, this should remind students of two things. Firstly, that rights and freedoms can't be granted, only asserted. And secondly, that many of the differences in power that we examine on our course are linked through the shared experience of struggle, in a way that allows us to develop a sense of empathy with people where no other apparent links might seem to exist. I haven't time to wax lyrical about Douglas and his writings, other than to note that Douglas himself visited Ireland during the Great Famine of the 1840s, providing insights that transcended his personal campaign to abolish slavery in the United States. I'll include some of those links to his work in the episode notes on www.palstockpodcast.com, especially links to a recent event, Douglas in Cork Week, that was designed to celebrate his visit to Ireland, but which is a kind of modern relevance that many might not have considered. Palsock students would do well to learn from the life of Frederick Douglass and decide what progress they can see ahead, which might become the focus of their own struggle. In this week's Students Strike Back... I continued on with some of our key human rights concepts by asking Mikey, Jake and Alice to explain and give examples of rights that are absolute, limited and qualified. Absolute rights can't be taken away from you for any reason. Another name for absolute rights are non-derogable rights. These include the right to life and the right to not be tortured or enslaved. A limited right is a right that can be limited in certain circumstances, as long as legal procedure is followed. So an example of this, if you're suspected for murder, you'll be remanded in custody to basically protect other people's right to life. Another example is for when you're sectioned for mental health to protect others. Qualified rights are rights that can be restricted if they affect others or the public interest. It is important to recognise certain rights specifically as qualified because people get the impression that all rights are unconditional. An example of these rights is freedom of expression. You can't express racial slurs towards somebody as it 
affects their right to be free from degrading treatment, or you cannot run into a cinema screaming fire as it may lead to injury. Can you, listening at home or in school, further refine these definitions, or give examples of your own that differ from those offered by Mikey, Jake and Alice? Now, I've never been one to look a gift horse in the mouth, so when you have an IREC commissioner who's also a sociology lecturer, one feels obliged to exploit them ruthlessly. I asked in advance, Lucy didn't mind. What I did was throw two specific parts of the subject specification at Lucy, specifically parts of learning outcome 6.2, and see how she responded to them. Now, this isn't to say that what you're about to hear is the only way to respond to these ideas, but it's always good to have a starting point. So let's see what kind of starting point we might have with the idea that, quote, political rights can be set aside for a period in order to enable a country to develop so that it can provide for its citizens. When you're dealing with these in the Listen Along Guide, you'll see that I've left a space for you to jot down the key ideas in the form of a mind map, where I'm encouraging you to summarise and evaluate Dr. Michael's ideas, rather than just slavishly copy them down verbatim. Paulo Ferreira just wouldn't allow me to get away with that. Uh if we took that idea that political rights can be set aside for a period in order to enable a country to develop so it can provide for its citizens, there's a couple of key things I would pull out of that. The first is it assumes that a country can't fully develop while observing political rights. So there, there's a kind of an innate assumption in that state uh, that some political rights are too expensive or cumbersome uh, to be observed and, and, and vindicated uh, during a country's development. Now, to me, that says one very strong thing, which is some people's political rights are assumed to be cumbersome, expensive and likely to get in the way of a country's development. In that case, we have to ask whose political rights, because if there's a set of people whose political rights are not included in a country's development, then when that country is developed, those people will not be fully included. So if you're going to set aside somebody's political rights while you develop a country, then you're not developing a country for those people. So to me, political rights are really, you know, they are at the very core of, uh, of human rights. If we're serious about democracy, they have to be at the very core. But they speak to so much more. Political rights include, um, you know, the right to the right to talk about uh, your own lack of access to other human rights uh, and the right to lobby for those. Um, if you can't do that while a country is developing, when can you do it? Because if you wait 20 years or 40 years or 50 years till a country uh, has its constitution and its legislation developed, when it has its economy booming, then what is the opportunity for you to change that system? Uh, so to me, political rights really are something that have to be uh, embedded during countries' development, or they're not really ever going to be realised. Now, the counter argument to that is, well, look, you know, let's be realistic and pragmatic. Countries only have so much money. They only have so much uh, so much resource. Maybe they've got um, allies that they need to keep happy and so on. And, and really, you know, we have to, to, to provide basics, food, water, housing for people. But countries' developments don't ever really work like that. So there will always be allies you have to please. There will always be dominant groups in a country who want to be more secure than others. Um, and there will always be migrant, uh, minority groups um, who maybe don't fit with uh, a country's idea of itself as it grows. So yes, you could set aside those political rights at the start, but if you do, I think you weaken the overall structure. You never actually get to a point where a country says, 
now we have enough money to do those things because we said they were luxuries before and now we have enough money to do them. For example, Ireland, reasonably well off country, uh, reasonably well thought of in the international sphere. And yet look around us, we have huge problems with homelessness. Our health service has been creaking for years. Uh, we have problems with racism. When did we, when do we get comfortable enough to deal with those things? Um, you know, we have huge problems with, uh, with the inclusion of disabled people. When do we get comfortable enough or wealthy enough to do that? Let me give you an example, just to put this into context. In the early 2000s, Ireland was looking for migrant labor to develop our growing economy. And so from 1997 onwards, we took advantage of international migration trends and we brought a lot of people from different countries to Ireland. And, and that really is kind of what we might think of as our kind of diversity boom period. Now, you could look and say, well, you know, we've more people of African descent coming in during that time and so on. But really, the people that were coming in were labour migrants encouraged by Ireland's labour migration policies. Now, to protect those people, they put in place a whole lot of mechanisms, uh, including the human rights uh, authorities and so on. But they put in mechanisms specifically to protect migrant labour, including anti-racism mechanisms. So the Garda Diversity Unit was set up in the early 2000s. The NCCRI, which was the National Consultative Committee uh, on Racism, that was set up in the early 2000s. And um, uh, they had uh, mechanisms for complaining about racism in employment. Uh, they had traveller education and employment programmes that went alongside those but it, very much this was about, really about, making Ireland a place where it was safe to be not Irish or to be not Irish, Catholic, white, settled, right? And that was okay until austerity came in 2008. And then Brian Fanning and I have written about this uh, in an article uh, where we talk about state anti-racism. Essentially, in 2008, the state pulls the plug and it pulls the plug very spectacularly from civil society organizations who are supporting migrants and minorities. It pulls the plug from the Equality Authority. It pulls the plug from the NCCRI, which is closed completely. And for nearly 20 years, that diversity unit in Angarda Siakona has remained systematically underfunded. So, you know, at what stage do we get comfortable enough to, to put those mechanisms in place? Well, we put them in place when we needed migrant labor but then when Ireland said oh well actually it'd be quite handy if all the migrant labor went home again so we could cope with recession they just pulled the plug on all of the stuff protecting migrants I, and so I my my concern is that when you say the political rights can be set aside to enable a country to develop you also legitimize the pulling back of political rights whenever a country enters economic recession and um, which as we know with boom and bust cycles is every 20 years or so. Uh, so remember that very important concept of progressive realization of human rights. We should always be moving forward. That doesn't mean you can start from a really low bar. It means that you do always have to go forward. The second thing I asked Dr. Michael to ponder, this time from Learning Outcome 6.3, was something that I've really struggled to get my own head around. And it's perhaps an example of the Pulsox spec being somewhat overpitched, in my opinion anyway. It's the concept of identifying what it means, quote, for states to agree to implement economic, social and cultural rights within the framework of international cooperation. It's quite the mouthful. Let's hope Lucy can give us some way into that idea. One of the key ways we view relationships in the world today is through trade. But if you look historically at trade, it has always been about a trade in ideas and knowledge and people. 
as much as it has been about trade of goods or services. And of course, uh, services is relatively new because of our global technologies. It was very often goods before that. Um, but people and ideas were moving long before that and bringing ideas with them of what a good city or a good life would look like. Uh, and so many of the very early religious texts contain ideas that are brought from other countries about how to be a good citizen or how to live a, a good life, how to, how to live a political life. And, and even if you look at the way that we're reliant today on Greek ideas of the demos, of democracy, uh, you know, we have drawn on those ideas internationally forever. What we're doing now is essentially saying there are ideas that we have broadly agreed make a good life, a good state, a good city, a good citizen. And what we want to do is find other countries who agree with us on those and do our business with them trade with them, share our populations with them, build relationships with them, build alliances with them. And alliances, if you go back to historical Europe, were very often built through marriage. Now they're built through trade agreements. I mean, very, very often the marriages were just really a symbolism of the trade agreements that were going on underneath or the agreement to, to swap land or whatever. Uh, the marriages were kind of the, the highly symbolic bit of that. But we so we've always had that cooperation and choosing who our allies are. Those ideas of who are our allies become very embedded uh, in our, our idea of, of who we are. And so when we think about who we are as a country, say Ireland, for example, we don't just think of ourselves in terms of the economy, but we share uh, cultural ideas, we share uh, economic rights to work, but we, we also share social rights. And when we look out in the world for people who are like us, they don't necessarily have to share our culture, but if they share our ideas about our rights to culture, if they share our idea about how we are to one another as citizens and how our states should treat us, then those are good countries for us to build long-term relationships with, including trade and including defence allyships and, and, and all of those kinds of things that make the, the, the world work in its global way. So there's no reason to not put in those rights within that framework. In fact, it would be a very bare and very weak framework if we didn't have those rights embedded uh, in that cooperation. I think that it would be a stripping back of what we've always had, which was a much clearer idea of, of partnership. In fact, if anything, when you look at those historical alliances, I think, you know, the fact that the, the symbolism of it was marriage was very often about accepting that we were part of a family, really a symbolism of who's part of your family. And, you know, we think about the European Union now as part of our political family, but right embedded in the relationship of the European Union are economic, social and cultural rights. And the same is true of our membership of the United Nations or the Council of Europe or any other me member bodies. Uh, the same is true of NATO. You know, we have ideas about who we are and, and who we're willing to go to war with. All of those international cooperations uh, embed ideas of who we are and economic and social cultural rights are right at the heart of that. Well, that's me for another week. All that remains for me to do is to thank the inestimably knowledgeable and eloquent Dr. Lucy Michael and to thank my student participants and to remind you to go and dig in deeper to the materials that Lucy has shared with us in the episode notes page. If nothing else, thinking about the interdependence of human rights and how we interact with the UN should do at least one thing. Remind us that we're not apart from society. We're a part of society. See you next time. Yeah.